You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we sit down with Nathan Beckard, who worked in investment banking, where he was involved in three technology IPOs and nearly 40 acquisitions. He's also the CEO and founder of Foundersuite, which brings structure, speed, and efficiency to fundraising and investor relations. Used by over 3,000 startups worldwide, including those in Y Combinator, Techstars, 500 Startups, Founders Clubs, and more. On today's show, we talk about why does such a small percentage of companies are able to raise any type of funding? If there was one key difference that sticks out between a company that can raise funding and one that can't, what would it be? Which fundraising steps do startup founders skip or have the most issues with? During the outreach, how often should one update their materials that they're sending out? What are all the documents that a startup should have prepared before going out to raise capital? And much more on today's episode. Now let's begin. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Nathan, thank you for taking the time today to be on the Silicon Valley podcast. Now, I'm super excited for this. We've been planning to do this interview now for a couple months, and it's finally happening. You've just come back from, well, an in-person conference. We won't go into names. Maybe we'll mention it later. But I've been really excited for this interview. But I know your background. Could you tell our audience a little bit about it? Sure. Thanks for having me, Sean. Appreciate it. Super excited to be here. Uh, So my background right now, I run Founder Suite, which is a software platform for raising capital. Um, but before that, I spent some time uh, helping companies raise capital. I started my career doing investment banking. This is years ago during the dot-com bubble boom, and then went off and hit, hung out my own shingle a company here called Venture Archetypes, uh, helping companies raise capital, then decided to build a software platform for raising capital. So kind of my entire career has been working with startup, helping them raise money, And, you know, that's what I really love doing. So kind of fun to come on here and talk about recent capital. Okay. So you've been in that space your whole career. A lot of it, I'm guessing, here in Silicon Valley. Now, when I talk to people that aren't from Silicon Valley, what they tell me is, you know, I visualize Silicon Valley as I get up on a plane, I arrive in San Francisco airport, I get off the plane, I check, you know, I get my baggage to check out, and then I have a check in my hand for my startup. Then I don't even leave the airport. I just circle back, get back on my plane and go home. How realistic is this vision of just everyone handing out money to startups here? Yeah, you can't swing a cat without hitting a VC here and, you know, they're just dripping money. No, of course, that's that's not true. Um, There's a lot of money in Silicon Valley, right? It is still, uh, even with kind of the dispersion that's happened with COVID and everything, there's, it's still the epicenter of venture capital far and away, you know, number two and number three in terms of how much money is deployed here. But it's still very hard to raise capital, right? It, I've known startups who have done something similar to what you just described, where they kind of jet in, meet a bunch of investors, walk away with a, a term sheet or a check. But that's extremely rare. And all of those did a lot of legwork and prep work before landing uh, at SFO, you know, to kind of grease the wheels and get investors teed up. So uh, you're not going to just come here and walk away with a check on Monday, you know, jet in on a Friday and walk away with a check on Monday unless you've spent six to 12 months kind of building relationships, getting uh, the traction necessary, you know, to excite investors and everything else. So, okay. So it sounds like it's 
not as easy as people think, but how hard is it? What should people expect in a fundraising process? What should they expect kind of timeline, kind of difficulty? Like what would be a more realistic um, idea of the situation? Yeah. So let's talk about timeline. I mean, most fundraisers, from my experience, take from two to six, sometimes two to eight months. Two months, you're going very fast. That's a that's a really fast fundraise. Um, is that two months if they have their pitch deck and everything solid already done, or is that just a general outline two to two to eight months? Yeah, that's a good question. So two months, assuming your materials are in place and you're ready. Two months, I would say, kind of from the day you start talking to investors and start pitching investors and start your outreach process. That's really fast. But I know startups who have done that. They usually have some outlier attribute to them, like insane traction, momentum. You know, they're they're blowing up on uh, product hunt or Discord or or something, right? There's something happening to them. Investors are often coming to them because the company is just growing so so crazy. I also know founders. Like, let's say, let's take this apart a little bit. Like, why do some startups? Why can they raise in two months? Another reason is. Founders done a really good job of identifying the 100 or 200 ideal fit investors for them. They've possibly reached out and nurtured those relationships or got the intros in advance. And then they say, all right, we're starting our fundraise, you know, April 1st, and we're going to run it for eight weeks. We're going to run intro meetings for these first two weeks. Everyone who's interested, right? They have a very discreet timeline intro meetings for the first two weeks, second and third round meetings. You know, for a week or two after that, uh, diligence for the following week, they have their data room all set up, ready for diligence. So that's not a, a delaying factor. And the founder is able to dedicate his or her like full time to fundraising. That's what makes a fundraising goes really fast, right? Identifying the right investors, having all your materials ready and and just running a really tight process and packing your schedule full of meetings. And, you know, kind of interestingly, during COVID days, I've known founders and we've had them on our podcast that have used the Zoom pitch meeting to pack in 10 pitch meetings a day instead of the five or four pitch meetings you can do if you're doing it face-to-face, right? So they've been able to compress the time frame a little bit. Let's just take that the other end, uh, other end of the spectrum. If your fundraising is taking six to eight months, why is that? It could mean almost the inverse of everything I just described. Maybe your traction isn't so incredibly dramatic that investors are just chomping at the bit to get into your deal. Maybe you weren't quite prepared for diligence, so you've got to kind of gather these materials. That can take some time. Maybe you're just too busy dealing with customers and partners that you can't devote your full time uh, you know, to fundraising. And that's all these things can make the fundraising take a little longer. So. Okay. So with that, I mean, the due diligence part, and I guess we can go into a lot more detail later of all those different parts and and break it down and what, what a time frame might look like and things that go in the data room or the, the pitch deck, all that stuff. But how come such a small percentage of companies actually raise funding? Cause it sounds like, well, there's this process that people go through. And if you just follow this process, that end result should be that check. Why even do people just not know this process or why is there such a small percentage that that actually gets some funding? Yeah, I, I think that's not everyone knows that. I don't know the exact statistic, but it's single to low dug, double digits of what companies go out to raise money, actually raise money. Right. Five to 10 percent is probably a reasonable 
benchmark. I don't know if anyone tracks that exactly, but is that five to 10% you think for their next round or to get to that exit? Uh, for the next round. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I've heard statistics that, you know, only five to 10% of companies that try and raise money are successful in raising money. And so there's another misconception that, that it's easy to raise money, right? It's actually very, very hard. So of the 90% that aren't able to raise money, why, why can't they? Again, it's a lot of those factors I mentioned. Maybe their traction is not very good. Maybe their pitch is not very good. <laughs> I would say top five reasons why startups fail at raising money is number one, their pitch is bad. It's actually quite hard, I feel, to do your own pitch and to build a good pitch when it's your own story. You know, founders often want to pack in the entire, the entire story, their entire journey thus far, where that's really not what investors need. They need something crisp and light and, you know, high level. Um, I would say founders don't do a good enough job targeting the right investors. They spray and pray, and that can actually hurt you if, if it feels like, even if a relevant investor feels like you didn't do any research on them, that you're just kind of reaching out to a thousand investors coldly, that can turn them off, right? So not doing the targeting and not having the right traction. When, we, when I raised money for Founder Suite, I actually tried, I had tried two other times um, I tried once, didn't get much interest from investors, took a break, spent six months working on the, the product, went back again, tried again, didn't get much traction again with investors, took another break, got my, mo uh, my momentum and traction up again. And then third time's the charm is able to raise money. But that's pretty common, right? Investors will say, hey, you're too early. I like what you're doing, but you're just a little too early for us. Come back when you have proof of concept. Uh, market validation, revenue, whatever that may be. So that's yeah. interesting. The fact that you said it took three times going out to the market to actually get that check. Do most companies, would you say, kind of give up on that process after maybe the first failure, the second failure? Or, I mean, is there one thing that really stands out? You mentioned five, but one that really stands out from that person that starts to go out to that person that or company that gets that check? Yeah, I think. You know, we have close to, I'd say, 3,000 companies on our platform using our software to raise capital. So, I'd, And I talk to a lot of these founders and I'll get people coming to me like, hey, I need to cancel. I'm just not having any luck on fundraising. I'll say, OK, well, let's just just unpack this a little bit. You know, how many investors have you talked to? You're like, yeah, I talked to 20 investors and no one's no one's biting like 20s. You've barely scratched the surface, right? That's the tip of the iceberg. And, you know, so kind of segueing this a little bit, I mean, fundraising is oftentimes a numbers game. You have to talk to a lot of investors to find the, the believers, as I like to say, right? The, the ones who are already kind of thinking about your industry. Maybe they're thinking about your industry in the similar way you're thinking about it, right? The ones that just kind of have a natural organic match to what you're doing. So, so I do think you see a lot of founders that give up either prematurely because they haven't talked to enough investors and uh, yeah, I think that's that's pretty common. So <laughs> I liked how you said, you know, they talked to 20 and they gave up. And I've had that conversation so many times with with founders and what well, the investment bank I'm at. They're like, well, how many potential buyers are you going to go out for our company? You know, 10, 15, I'm like, no, we're going out to, you know, 1500 uh -huh. that fit your that their investment thesis fits your company, you know, sector, state, like everything. And they're like, what? Like they can't understand the what the pipeline that yes. funnel looks like mm -hmm. from this huge down to that that one you decide to go the dance with. Yeah. 
I, I love this. And anyway, I do a talk called Funding Hacks, and we use a funnel metaphor for this, kind of thinking about uh, what the top of your funnel looks like in each stage. And kind of broadly speaking, with a lot of startups, and I even use our example, that third time when I actually ended up raising capital uh, for Founder Suite, I pitched over 200 investors and ended up with one seed venture fund and 10 angels coming in on the deal. So that's about a 5% conversion rate between who I pitched and who wrote me a check, right? And had drop off at each stage of, of the funnel. And that's pretty common, I think. I've seen that kind of 5 to 6% conversion rate come up time, time, time and time again with other startups. So that's just sort of a, a goes to show why it really is a numbers game. We've got to talk to a lot of investors to find those 5% that, that like you. <laughs> so we talked about the funnel and that funnel could be the, the entire process. Mm-hmm. Can we go a little bit deeper into each of those steps of that funnel, each of those steps in the process and kind of lay it out and break it down? Yeah. So top of the funnel where you're, you know, maybe building a list of 200 to 300 potential investors. Um, that's kind of your broadest part of the funnel, right? And then I would say sort of step two beyond that is to really qualify that list, right? Go in and do a little more research. Um, as a general rule of thumb, I say maybe spend 10, 15, 20 more minutes per each investor at the top of the funnel. And just make sure they invest in your sector, your stage, that ideally you identify that they've raised a new fund in the last couple of years, right? So they're actively investing. Well, why would that be important? Well, if you're not you know, intimately familiar with how venture capital works, a venture firm will raise a new fund, call it a $50 million fund, and then they'll put half of that to work investing in a bunch of companies. And then they will, over the first, say, two to three years of that fund, And then they will save the other 50% of that fund to double down on their winners. And so if you're, you know, looking at a fund that hasn't raised a new fund in the last couple of years, they might just be saving their their fund to do the follow-on deals. They might not be doing a lot of new deals. And conversely, you know, the best fund to be pitching is one that just raised a new fund, right? They've got fresh capital to work. They're looking for a, a new cohort of deals to invest in. So, and you know, I even when I was raising money, I talked to a lot of funds and you, the meetings can be productive. The meetings can be good. But when you get into the meeting, you're like, you know, so you guys actively investing and they're like, well, we're actually raising our next fund right now. I'm like, okay, well, I'm not going to get a check from you. Still nice to meet you. You know, maybe this will come to fruition for my next round. But uh, it's easy to waste a lot of time pitching funds that don't have like dry capital to put to work. So so that's it, you know, so kind of thinking that large funnel and then the next step is qualifying that list. Like I said, making sure they invest in uh, your type of deal, making sure they don't have a competitive deal in their portfolio, right? It doesn't really make sense to be talking to a, a fund that already backed a competitor. It's not likely they will invest in you. They might even share your, your deck with your competitor. I've seen that happen many, many times. And, you know, and then kind of, the ones that drop out from that stage, I'd like to say, expect to remove about 30% of that initial list. Then the next stage is let's try and find a mutual connection, right? If you have any um, advisors, mentors, previous investors, maybe you raised some angel money and your angels can connect you, kind of tapping your, your overall social graph to see if you have any connections, looking on LinkedIn, obviously. And then if you don't, you know, how do you 
how do you build those connections? We can talk about that in more detail. But you're basically kind of trying to find the right funds, the right people at those funds, uh, find the right path to those people. And then it gets into the really fundraising process of getting those intros, the pitches, and we can go into that if you want. Or Definitely let's go into that. But I also want to say I, I've talked to so many founders in that that had no idea how strong their networks were. Mm-hmm. And you'll talk to them. I remember one time I was talking to two co-founders and one of them had gotten, I think it was a PhD at MIT and the other a master's at Stanford. And they were saying, we don't know any angels. Uh-huh. And I was like, each of your universities has its own angel alumni network. Right. Each of your universities have all these people in your space that have founded these huge public companies. Totally. How have you not, how can you not tap it? And then we started talking and they're like, oh, actually, yeah, I guess we do have this strong network we could leverage. We never thought about it. Yeah. Well, even I'll, I'll drill on that for a minute. Even just going in to your LinkedIn, searching in the search bar up in the kind of upper left for angel investor, and then applying a filter of like first or second degree connections will show you. And then you can go even further. Let's take that example, right? Search on angel investor search on first and secondary connections, and then put in your university. That will show you all the angel investors that you have some connection path to that went to MIT as well, and how, how you can reach them because you have a mutual connection. Like Your network's probably larger than you think, and a lot of people don't kind of know how to activate it, right? But you've also got to be hustling. I mean, you know, I know other founders that kind of back to your original question, they'll drop into Silicon Valley, spend a couple weeks here, and they just hustle like crazy. I We had one in our podcast, this guy, Australian guy, and he kind of tapped the Australian connections. He kind of made a list of every Australian founder out there, told him he was coming to Silicon Valley, reached out to them, got coffee with them, told him what he was doing, right? And just kind of worked this network based on the commonality of being originally born in Australia, right? You know, and you can do that same approach using your university or many other factors. So, yeah. All right, so go on. So you're reaching out, you're connecting with everyone on LinkedIn, you're tapping your advisors, your mentors, everyone. What's next? I kind of think of this almost in the preparation phase and then the go time phase, right? And in the preparation phase, I would still be kind of mapping those connection paths um, like we just talked about and and even reaching out to other founders who may like if you have identified an investor for example that is a dream investor for you but none of your advisors know her uh you don't have any second degree connections on linkedin to that that person looking at her portfolio companies even reaching out cold to a couple of the founders that she's invested in getting a dialogue going with those founders maybe if they're local and in bay area taking them out for a lunch or something like that just asking for some feedback on your deck. It doesn't have to be a hard sell, but trying to build a connection path if you can't find one, right? And so I consider that still in the preparation phase. Also in the preparation phase, I would say just making sure your deck, uh, your pitch deck, your financial model, ideally setting up a data room, which has all your your sensitive documents in it that investors are going to want to see, getting all those ducks in a row. Can you dive a little bit more into that? Because Almost every conversation I have, people don't know what a data room is. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually, it's kind of funny because it's, 
I think they are used much more in investment banking and M&A deals and, and later stage deals, but it's equally applicable to, to early stage rounds. And not to make this a, a product plug, but we just launched a data room within Founder Suite. It's like a month or two old, so it's a brand new product. It's really awesome. Before even going for give us a, a 60 second overview of Founder Suite, because we keep we keep referencing it. So maybe, you know, just plug it right now. OK, here's a quick plug. Shameless. But uh, it's a it's a whole suite of software platforms for raising capital. We have a database of investors to, to do your hunting and searching to build a target list, about 200,000 investors in there. Uh, angels, VCs, corporate VC, family offices, kind of everything. We have a CRM to help manage the whole process, you know, where you're at with every investor. We have a pitch deck hosting tool, put up your deck, send it out, track who views it. We have investor update tools um, to send out like a quarterly or monthly update about your business. Um, We have an email tool for doing like follow up at scale. We have a collection of documents like term sheets, pitch decks, cap tables, stuff like that. And we have a data room, which is really useful for running due diligence. And so I'll segue off on that. But yeah, due diligence, you know, comes a little bit later, like when we're talking about the process, but it's good to prepare for it early on. And so what I recommend is, you know, setting up a data room, having folder structures like corporate documents where you're putting in, you know, basic stuff like articles of incorporation and uh, all all that good stuff, having uh, uh, financials, right? This is where you're putting historical financials, your financial forecast, things like that. Maybe a folder called intellectual property, where if you have any patents or anything like that, put it in there. Um, uh, product roadmap could be another folder talking about kind of, you know, where this is going. Customer customer references and also customer pipeline. That is often a, another folder that I see people have. Um, marketing plan, which is maybe just a collection of any press and and marketing activities, including like your metrics and stuff like that, right? And team and advisors. So you can kind of have a whole structure of folders there. And then you populate this with all the, all the files that are relevant to each category. I'll give you an example. When I was raising money, um, I got a term sheet from FFBC in New York. Great little seed venture fund in New York. And uh, I got the term sheet on Friday. I was super excited. And then on Monday, they sent me their due diligence list, which was like 140 items they needed. Everything from customer analy- or customer references to personal references. They wanted access to my Google Analytics. They wanted all our you know financial documents and stuff like that. And I wasn't really ready for it. Like I had some of that stuff collected, you know. Um, but getting all that stuff in order and having it in a neat, orderly format that you can then send to investors when they ask for it will make everything go really you know much faster and smoother. It also shows you're really prepared, right? You're not an amateur at this. If if investor says, I'm interested, can you send me your financial documents? And 20 minutes after that meeting, they get a link that invites them into the financials folder in your diligence room. You look like a stud, right? I mean, it's it can make you really look good. And and the cool thing about you know data room is you can kind of set access on who can access what documents, can they view it only? Can they view it and download it? Can they view it and print it? Right. There's a lot of control you have over it. So Anyway, I digress about the value of a, a data room in general, but that would be kind of the prep phase, right? Finishing up your pitch deck, your model, getting your data room all ready. Would you recommend working on the data room before doing your pitch deck and everything or simultaneously or after? Because I've noticed, at least for, for me, 
if we get the data room first, they think about that pitch. They think about the whole company while they're moving forward, mm. creating the other marketing materials. But what's been your experience? That's a great question. I've never really thought about it. I, when I've done this in the past and when I used to work with clients, we would often start with the pitch deck only because getting the story, you know, the pitch deck is all about story, like building a story. And that's kind of the the starting point for me when I think about it, like what is the story we're going to present to the world, to investors? So I usually start with the story and then how do we tell that story in numbers? That's where we get into the financial, uh, financial model and stuff like that. So I think I would probably do the data room last, but I, I totally see the argument of starting it up front. So you're thinking about your business, you know, as a, a whole entity. Yeah. I've never really thought about that. That's a good question. <laughs> All, right. All right. Keep going. Keep going with the process. So yeah. So wrapping that up, you know, everything from kind of recapping, building that target list of investors, qualifying that list, mapping connection paths, getting that all loaded up into a CRM or some system for managing it. Because if you're going to be talking to a couple hundred investors, I really believe you need some system of tracking it. Maybe it's a CRM like Founder Suite. Maybe it's you're using Salesforce because you're already familiar with Salesforce. Maybe you're using a spreadsheet. I don't, I don't really recommend a spreadsheet only because it becomes pretty messy pretty quickly when you're talking to a couple hundred investors. You know, it's hard to really make it actionable, but people have raised money using spreadsheets, you know, and so that's all prep phase. And now the next, the next phase is kind of the execution phase, really the hustle phase, as I like to say also. You've got everything ready. And now, you flip a switch and say, all right, April 1st, we're starting our fundraise. And that's where you start to ask all your connection, all your connectors for that intro, pretty much all around the same time frame, right? You're really trying to get a lot of momentum going. And here's maybe where if you're not in Silicon Valley, where you start to schedule um, a week or two here, you know, you ask your connectors like, hey, I'm going to be out in Silicon Valley. Can you connect me to Martha at Benchmark Capital or whatever? You try and start to pack your schedule full of meetings, leaning on your connectors to make those intros. And here the key is really a couple things. One is getting momentum going, having a lot of meetings in a pretty dense time frame. We call this calendar density, right? Really getting a lot packed in and, and just having that sense of momentum that investors can kind of pick up on when you're meeting. If I'm sitting down pitching you and can kind of signal that I've got six other meetings after you. <laughs> if you're interested in my deal, you probably are going to pay attention and, and you might be moving a little faster, which is what we all want. Now, how can a founder or should a founder like prep in advance for these meetings? Should they yeah. have their friend ask them a bunch of random questions? Should they have their advisors or mentor quiz them? How should you prep? I would guess you don't want those first three meetings to be your trial meetings. I love this question. I should have included that in the prep phase, right? Because yes, I kind of skipped that part. You, you shouldn't go out, especially with your top <laughs> funds, having not given your pitch. I like to tell founders, make sure you've given your pitch at least 10 times to people who will give you honest feedback. That could be attorneys, your accountant. It could be guys like you, maybe that are you know in the investment banking world and see a lot of deals, maybe and I don't want to speak for your business, but maybe, you know, the startup's a little bit premature for your business now, but it could be a client down the road. Maybe you'd be willing to give them a, a quick 20 minute feedback on their deck or something like that, right? There are people who are in the industry who, who will give you feedback. 
uh, also leaning on other founders. If you're in an incubator, an accelerator, or even a co-working space, you know, tap a few f- folks to sit through your pitch and give you honest feedback. You want honest feedback. You want, really want people to rip you apart as much as you can. And, and even like reaching out, combining a couple of the prep phase things. Let me try and make this as, as clear as possible. Let's say you had, you identified Martha Benchmark as someone you really want to get to know. So you reach out to a couple of her portfolio company founders, reach out to them simply asking, hey, I'm, I'm going to start fundraising. We're in the same kind of general space. We're both doing e-commerce software or something like that. Could you give me 10 minutes and give me feedback on my deck, right? Reaching out to those company founders who've been funded already, they're going to be a goldmine of, of feedback on your deck. So, And those could also lead to those introductions to the investor you want. So you're kind of getting two birds with one stone there. Well, I think you also might have missed something that Founder Suite, shameless plug, <laughs> gives. Don't you also kind of give hints of what maybe VCs kind of like or feedback from people that have gone through meetings with them? And if these portfolio companies, if you're getting hints from them, they might give you hints of, hey, that VC really likes it when you cover this or go really deep dive into this you know, part or, or that. Just wondering, is that? Yeah, so we just launched something that we're calling investor insights and it's we're trying to tap that kind of wisdom of the crowd so if you just pitched martha at benchmark i don't think there is actually martha at benchmark but if, <laughs> there could be one person right now like just looking around going like what, what the hell is they are they talking about <laughs> my inbox is so full now what's going on uh so if we're what we're trying to do and this is just a few weeks old actually the ink is uh, or the paint's barely dry on this but it's called investor insights so we're trying to tap our actual customers. We've got a couple thousand startups using our platform. So if you just pitched Bill Gurley at Benchmark Capital, that's a real person, you know, and he was just drilling on product, we want to kind of glean that information from you so that the next person to go in and talk to Benchmark knows, oh, Benchmark is really product focused or, or this other VC is really numbers. They're just going to drill into your numbers to go in prepared, really kind of helping you better prepare and bring a little more transparency, you know, kind of founders helping other founders along this journey, which is always painful. So yeah, that's a new new thing we're working on. Yeah, I yeah. love being able to focus and tailor your pitch per whoever you're sitting across from. So that that's fantastic. Okay. So you're now, I guess we're at the stage where you're getting the meetings or yeah. are we still getting the warm intros? Yes, both the warm intros, hopefully those intros are leading to meetings, right? And you know, kind of something I think I would recommend is possibly staggering those intros and meetings a little bit, maybe to put some of your sort of second tier investors as your first meetings, just to get a few more reps and practice on your pitch deck. That's a pretty good strategy, right? If your dream firm is Bill Gurley, or dream investor is Bill Gurley Benchmark, don't pitch him the very first pitch, right? Make sure you've given a few reps to real investors before stacking your your dream team. Yeah, and really, like I said, trying to pack your calendar full of meetings so you're having three to, I, I know founders who have done 10 meetings a day in the Zoom era with investors, really packing your, your days full of pitch meetings and you're trying to get, like I said, momentum going. Investors will often ask you in a pitch meeting, so how's the round coming together? You know, where are you at with this round? And you want to be able to answer with, signals to them like, hey, it's coming together pretty good. We just started this round April 1st. Um, I've got 12 
I've got 14 meetings lined up this week. I've got 20 next week. It's going to be a, a crazy week next week. You know, I'm trying to get all my first round meetings going with my target list in these first two weeks and then do partner meetings weeks three and four and then really get term sheets in by by week number six or, or initial indications of interest. You're setting a timeline right there. And you're signaling to these investors that you're running a pretty tight process and that you have a lot of other investors interested. And that all that combined can really help drive a, a pretty quick fundraise, which is what we all want, right? That way you can get back to <laughs> building your business. So I like how the whole process is was always starting on April 1st. I, I, <laughs> I think if I were to do that, half the people I know, like, Sean, is this a fool's Yeah, like, exactly. Well, Maybe <laughs> what's going on here? April 2nd, April yeah. 2nd, right. <laughs> So, so of that whole process, where do, and maybe I've already drilled down it, but where do people try to skip or where do they have problems with? Where are they just like, yeah, I'm just going to go from A to Z and forget this in the middle. Founders do skip that qualifying the investor list part a lot. It's not contrast this to 10, 15 years ago, or it's actually hard to find investors. It's not that hard to find investors anymore, right? You have databases like Foundersuite, like Crunchbase, like PitchBook, Signal, uh, which is a venture fund, has a database of investors, right? There's multiple online databases of investors. So it's not that hard to find kind of a starting list of, of investors. But then where people do skip is they don't qualify that list. And, and so they're reaching out to uh, a fund that might do their sector, B2B software or fintech or something, but their later stage fund, right? And you're a seed stage deal. It doesn't make any sense to reach out to like a growth fund if you're raising a seed round. And the investor's like, this guy didn't clearly didn't do the homework on me. Um, you know, the more you can tailor your outreach, your pitch, your whole messaging around each investor that you really know what they're doing. Maybe you've followed them on Twitter. Maybe you can reference some other deal they did, right? This all goes to show that you've done your homework and that you're really reaching out to them. And, that's, and then it's a fit. Investors usually will welcome that outreach, even if you do cold, which I don't know, that's another topic. But even if you've done cold, but you clearly show that you understand this investor's thesis, they're often welcoming to that because there's a match there, right? So that's where I see people skip a lot. It sounds like this whole process is kind of very similar to selling a product. Mm -hmm. Are sales skills very, very important? I mean, if you don't have those skills, are you just, is it hopeless? What should people be focusing on maybe to grow and develop to give them the best opportunity throughout this? Yeah, it's a great question. A lot of founders, a lot of startups uh, might be run by technical founders. That's actually very attractive to many, many investors. They like to see like technical founders, especially at the early stages. But a lot of, a lot of times technical founders aren't necessarily good salespeople. <laughs> maybe they're introverted. Maybe they're just kind of don't have great people skills, whatever it may be. So being able to sell and to hustle in a, in a positive way is, is a good thing. I think pretty important. One of the things I tell founders sometimes, like when I'm doing our, our podcast is you've got to channel your inner hustler. Even if you aren't a natural extrovert or a natural hustler, you've got to kind of, you know, not be afraid to get out there, talk to investors, get on a Zoom, get in a face-to-face -face meeting with them, bring the energy to those meetings, 
get them excited about what you're doing and ultimately ask for the next step. The next step could be another meeting, could be to get them into your data room. It could be uh, starting to talk, talk about terms. It could be simply asking them, you know, are you interested in this deal? And if so, what, what happens next, right? Kind of pushing things, pushing things towards, towards the next step, right? One of the kind of corny jokes I make, like the way our CRM is structured, it's like a Kanban board. You have, you know, stages of fundraising from research, contacted pitch, diligence, committed, said no. And then each investor is a card. And one of the stupid jokes I make is like, it's kind of like a chess game where you're moving all these pieces across the board and you've got to be kind of actively working these pieces and moving them across your board into the next phase, right? So everyone who you've pitched, what can you do to kind of hustle and nudge them into diligence discussions? Everyone who's in diligence, what are they waiting on? What can you do to kind of move those people into putting down a term sheet or Otherwise, you know, coming in around if you already have a lead. So long-winded way of saying, yes, I think sales and kind of quote-unquote hustle skills are important. Got to keep it all moving. I think also just relationship building skills, which is sometimes different than sales. Sales can be sometimes transactional where you're just trying to get someone to say yes or no. You know, relationship can be something that you're nurturing over a period of time. And that's a whole nother topic we can talk about, but that's also very important too. And that can be much less salesy, more uh, more nurturing, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Speaking of nurturing, during this process, they have access to your, your, your pitch deck. You've talked to them and you're getting feedback, yeah. constantly getting feedback, <laughs> constantly, okay, you know, change this, update this, have questions. When you're changing your pitch deck, when you're updating and modifying it, how often should you send out notifications of updates to people you've talked to or how often should you be updating this material or is it kind of one and done forget yeah that's a good question i one of you know so here's a, a somewhat controversial topic in the fundraising world whether to send your deck for example your pitch deck as a link and having that deck hosted on online like on a site like founder suite or docsend or google slides or whether to send your deck as an attachment. Because a lot of investors prefer the attachment, that way they can save it to their their own CRM or whatever, they can view it on their phone, all this good stuff, right? The argument for having it online is that, like you just said, you can constantly update your materials. And when I was out fundraising, I would go, I have my starting deck, I would go out pitch, I get a lot of feedback, and you have to, be selective in what feedback you take because your head will spin around <laughs> if you just take it off, right? Finding patterns in the feedback, working that into improving your deck, and then uploading or updating your, your online deck. And so that way the online version is always the latest and greatest. Now I don't send up, I don't send out a, a notification every time I update the deck because I'm probably updating this deck uh, almost every day, a couple times a week at least. But even if you send a link to an investor, Two weeks ago, it's always pointing towards the latest and greatest version of your deck. And I think that's a really nice thing to do. So short answer is, yeah, kind of constantly be tweaking your deck, um, overcoming. If you can tell one of your slides is confusing to investors, maybe it's your market rollout strategy and everyone gets stuck on that or is puzzled by that, improving that. Also, kind of in the same category, you didn't ask this, but I'll say it anyway. 
if you can have someone else write down every question investors asking, right? Maybe you record the Zoom, maybe you have your co-founder in the room just writing down all the, the questions, building a bunch of appendix slides to answer those questions can really be helpful too. So bottom line, your deck should just be getting better almost every day of your fundraising process. And that helps. You're getting momentum going on your deal and your deck and your story is getting better. Those things to kind of reinforce each other. So, And we've talked a lot about the view from the entrepreneur side. Yeah. What's happening? Because I think if people are aware of it, it'll give a lot more context of the whole process. What's happening on the investor side from the time they get an email sent to them to the time maybe they send out a term sheet? Yeah, it's a a good question. And I think it's important because founders often probably don't appreciate it, what it's like to be in the investor seat. I would say, I would start off with like most investors, especially um, if they've been investing for a while and having kind of brand, are getting literally hundreds of intros even per day, right? (laughs) And they're seeing and talking to thousands of startups per year. So I'd say step number one, Step, step one, just understand from the founder's perspective, you are one of 50 other startups that came across her email that day. And then if you get to the pitch meeting, hopefully uh, it gets to the pitch meeting, you are one of 30 companies that she met with that week. And you hear some of the stories about how many a certain venture firm that's pretty well known will have talked to a thousand companies in a year. Each partner's doing, you know, it's three partners, four partners, each partner's doing four deals a year. So they're investing in, you know, call it 16 companies out of the thousand they talk to, right? So I guess where I'm going with this is just first understand they're just getting like a fire hose of deals coming at them. And I think a lot of investors, rightly or wrongly, are kind of trying, they're looking for reasons to say no. They're looking for reasons to just cross this off. It's too early. It's not a fit. Founder didn't come in through the right channel. It's a cold email. You know, some people I think rule that out. So, so they're kind of because of the fire hose of stuff coming at them. They're looking for reasons to say no. Um, when something does sort of like pop out of their inbox that looks interesting to them, okay, so let's have a meeting. Let's. I think a lot of investors will often use kind of their gut tuition, even in that first meeting, to make like almost a. I, I don't want to say this is common across all investors, but I think a lot of investors will sort of make a decision fairly quickly and then use the rest of the meeting and meetings and due diligence to either support that decision or to cross that decision off. So they're kind of making pretty quick decisions about do I like the startup or not? Once they decide they do like the the startup on that Zoom or that pitch meeting, they all want to get kind of a second opinion of the other partners at the fund, right? And that's where you as the founder might come in and meet other people at the fund, possibly even at a partner's meeting, which could be a room of 10 people and you've got to present your pitch and kind of be on the Shark Tank firing line in front of a lot of uh, other investors. They might also kick it off, kick you, I don't want to say kick you down, but kick you or put you to a junior member, maybe an associate or analyst who are going to dig in to the business a little bit more. And that's okay. That doesn't mean you're getting handed off to a, a junior person. You're not getting demoted, even if you're talking to a partner, right? But you've got to kind of go through that process. And so it's kind of like, all right, from the investor's perspective, do I like this idea? Do I like this founder? Do I get a good 
vibe about him or her. I'm going to have my analysts check it out. Do the numbers check out? Do their traction seem real? Can I believe these numbers they're putting forth? Okay. All the while, I'm thinking, are there other investors hunting this deal? Like, is there momentum around this deal? Do I need to pursue this investor a little bit if I do kind of like this? Or can I kind of watch and wait and, you know, build a relationship with this this founder over a period of time? But hopefully there's some momentum that's pushing you as the investor to kind of move quickly. So then that's where you might ask for your, um, start talking about valuation and terms. Like, here's how we typically, we wanted to do a price round. You start to get into that and then you get into due diligence and, and again, kind of do even a deeper dive into all the the data and stuff like that. And so it's almost a, a reverse funnel on the investor side where, where they're talking to a thousand companies to getting down to their 10 or 15 that they're looking to do. So, right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Actually, that was, that was really good. We also talked and I'm just, I was thinking that right now of what else we, we didn't cover that needs to be prepared in advance before the whole process. Documents. Pitch deck one, NDA, is that important or what documents are needed that you should have prepared or ready before going out? Yeah, most investors won't sign an NDA and I think it can hurt you a little bit as a founder if you're asking investors to sign an NDA because most won't. And so then you've got a point of friction already. I think you should almost have a set of materials like your pitch deck, even a high level model that you can share with investors that don't have all your secret sauce in it. Um, And then you put your really sensitive stuff like intellectual property in a data room, and then you can track which investors are looking at that. You know, I would say to answer the question, like what else should you prepare? I would go off on a little bit of a tangent here. One of the things I like to tell founders to do is to actually build relationships and nurture relationships with investors, even several months in advance. And that can be by using company updates to kind of nurture these relationships with investors, right? So, you know, in a perfect world, you as a founder want to raise money in uh, September. Maybe you start building this target list of investors, reaching out to these investors with, with what I call the permission email. Now, call it April. Uh, and the permission email is like, hey, hey, Sean, I see you've invested in these companies. You've done a lot of activity in our, our space, which is SaaS. I'm launching a new startup called Founder Suite doing SaaS fintech. Um, we just launched a few months ago. I'm not raising money right now, but I plan to be this fall. We're going to kick off our seed round. Can I have your permission to add you to our update list? We send out a, a monthly update. One page just talks about our progress. I would love to give you an early peek at what we're building. And, you know, you start to build this company update on a pretty regular schedule. And if I'm sending you on April, May, June, July, August, you've now gotten to kind of see my company develop over six months, right? You've seen our progress. You've seen the product unfold. Maybe you've seen us make a few key strategic hires or bring on some high profile advisors, you're seeing this thing take shape and kind of flower. And then in that August update, I put in a little thing, hey, we're about to kick off our seed round. Do you want early access to our deck and data room? And I've seen deals that actually get picked up before they go out to market 
because the founders did that prep work of kind of nurturing relationships along the way for six months using company updates. So long way, long-winded way of saying, in addition to having your deck, your data room, having a regular company update that you send out monthly can be a great marketing tool. It's just like marketing complements sales. You know, this is a way to market your company before going out to raise capital. <laughs> I really like that. And I don't see why more startups aren't doing that. And I really like it when in that update, they also have kind of what their wants are. You know, they mm-hmm. say their accomplishments, what they've done. And also we're looking for another advisor with this background, or we're looking for intros to these strategics or that. Yep. And it's just a way to you start getting curious and you start feeling like you're a part of this startup if yeah. you help them out and you get that relationship. Absolutely. And I want to riff on that for a minute because I think that's, that's, that's brilliant. Not only do you send this update to potential investors that you want to kind of come along on your journey and, and maybe they are interested in what you're doing and they are making an intro to an advisor or a, a chief marketing person even before they've written you a check. Like, that's great, right? Um, think about the investor that's actually added value before they've even <laughs> written you a check. That's that goes a long way. But also thinking about it, like who else could be helping you with this business? It could be other other advisors, other founders. I I'm on the receiving end of a lot of company updates from our customers just because I've got to know them. Doesn't mean I'm helping all of them, but sometimes I'll see that ask for help. I'm like, oh yeah, I know, I totally know someone at XYZ. Happy to intro them. Wouldn't have known that if I didn't read about it in the update. So kind of thinking where I'm going with this is thinking about like broad, more broadly, not only using the updates as a way to nurture and pre-market your deal to investors, but to also just engage like a larger stakeholder base and mm-hmm. fan base. And it's so powerful. And last thing I'll say about this, like if you have a little ask for help in your update, I'm looking for a, a key advisor who really knows uh, e-commerce transaction systems, whatever it may be, something specific, and someone makes that intro, it ends up you know, leading to a hire or something like that. In your next month's update, thank that person. Call them out. Like, thank you so much to Sean for making a key intro to Rashida, who's our new chief commerce officer, right? Something like that. You're thinking, and now you, you as the person who got the update, took some action, and now get the next update, you're a star. You, you feel not only did you help, but you're being called out and thanked publicly. And this update list, some of them can be out to thousands of people, right? Like, that's huge. That's huge. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Now you're like, your tribe is formed. Yeah, I, right. Try I like that. The tribe. Yeah. So, Nathan, one last question. And thank you for, for all the time you've given us and all the wisdom you shared. Through your, your experience, even back investment banking to now, is there any last either tidbit, story, wisdom, anything you'd like to share with our audience before we wrap it up? Yeah, I think raising capital can be pretty intimidating to founders, right? Maybe you're three years out of college, you're an engineer. It's like, how the hell do I go pitch all these money people down on Sand Hill Road? Uh, How do I crack into Silicon Valley? I'd say, like, don't ever think it, just start doing it, you know, just start doing everything we just described here, getting a good story together because stories are really what people are investing in. Even at, especially in the early stages, investors are investing in a story. What is the story this founder is telling me? 
And do I believe it? And is it a big vision I can get excited about, right? So get start to get your story together. Um, start to do the research. And this is going to take time, like we talked about. It's a, a step a lot of people skip or, or short change. Start to do the research in building that target list of investors. Start that process way in advance of when you plan to raise money. Because it can take, when I was doing this for companies as a consultant, I would say it would take me 50 to 100 hours of research to build a really high quality target investor list. So start that process early and then start the the investor update outreach, the permission email and the the company update thing early. You do those things. Good good pitch, good story, well qualified list and start to nurture those relationships with a monthly company update. You're going to your fundraising is going to be easy if your company's cool. <laughs> right? You still have to have a cool company, uh but your fundraising is going to go much faster than if you don't do that stuff. And you, so. And with that, Nathan, if anyone wants to find out more information about you, your company, what you're working on, what's the best way to go about doing it? Sure. So, um, Founder Suite is the business, F O U N D E R S U I T E dot com. Pretty easy to find. And then we are simply at Founder Suite on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. Uh, I'd love to, I'd love to connect on LinkedIn, maybe mention you heard about me on the show. It's simply the Silicon Valley podcast. So, of course, the Silicon Valley pad, podcast, which is awesome. I think it's LinkedIn slash LinkedIn.com slash in slash Nathan Beckert, right? So easy to find, but may mention you saw me on Sean's show, Silicon Valley podcast. Awesome show. We put out a lot of good content on LinkedIn. So I'd say check that out. And then last but not least, we do have our own podcast called How I Raised It. It's simply interviews with like 200 founders on how they raise capital, just getting into the weeds of like, how did they work the angel network circuit? Or how did they, you know, use LinkedIn to find leads? I mean, it's very tactical, granular stuff. So that's good. And hopefully we'll get you on our show and we can get some tips from your brain for our founders. So How I Raised It on YouTube. SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, all the usuals. Fantastic. We'll have all that information in the show notes. And with that, for the audience, I know you're going to listen to this episode multiple times. While listening, please share with your network. Also go on iTunes and any other podcast platform. Give us a good review. It encourages us to create more content like this. And for everyone out there, please connect with me on LinkedIn. It's just Sean Flynn and all my social media handles are Sean Flynn SV. It's S-H-A-W-N-F-L-Y-N-N. If anyone is looking for a mid-market investment banker, please contact me. I'm always open to have a conversation. So if you're looking to acquire a company, if you're looking to sell your company, raising growth capital or secondaries, please reach out. I'm a principal at a mid-market investment bank. And with that, Nathan, I want to thank you one more time for taking the time today to be a guest on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Thank you, Sean. Much appreciated. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the siliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.